You're listening to Seven Churches, a teaching series at Shoreline Church with Pastor Pilgrim Benham. For more content, visit thisisshoreline.com. We're going to look today at uh, what some of your headings uh, describe the compromising church, the compromising church. Uh, the location was Pearl Harbor. The date was Sunday morning. December 7th, 1941, 353 Japanese airplanes began swarming all around the harbor. Within a couple of hours, America lost eight battleships, six airfields, almost every plane, and tragically, around 2,400 men. What began at 7.50 a.m. was supposedly a surprised attack, but there are some startling facts when you begin to research history. That morning, 50 minutes earlier at 7 a.m., while the Japanese warplanes were 137 miles or about 50 minutes away, uh, two U.S. soldiers on a small radar station in the Pacific scanned the screen and saw something strange on their screen. They saw dot after dot after dot appearing on the screen until the entire screen was filled. And these soldiers notified their supervisor. He was a youthful lieutenant. There was no other officer around except for him because it was a Sunday. The lieutenant thought, well, these must be planes from California. And without another thought, he said these crucial words. I want these to resonate with us as we open the text this morning. He said this, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. See, there would have been time to scramble the planes at Pearl Harbor to prepare the battleships, to shelter the men. Uh, But this lieutenant, at the most responsible moment of his career, he failed the nation and his own men with those words, don't worry about it. Uh, In our own lives, is there something that has the potential to wreak havoc, spiritual destruction in our lives, and yet we dismiss it away and just say, nah, don't worry about it. It's just a little sin. Uh, It's not that big. This is what we call spiritual Compromise. Pearl Harbor could have been prevented if someone took the warning seriously, but because they didn't, they said, don't worry about it, many lives were lost. And this morning, there could be some of us, maybe a few of us, maybe many of us this morning who have an area of spiritual compromise in our lives. Uh, The word compromise is something that we hear often, And it has a few different definitions, but in politics, compromise is a good thing. Right now, our politicians are trying to reach a compromise on DACA, and this will help kind of steer us forward in our Congress. And so there's a compromise, and that's a good thing. We want there to be some type of compromise across the aisle. And all these pundits and all these these media personalities are saying, when will the Republicans and Democrats reach a compromise? It's a good thing in in politics. What about in relationships? Compromise is a good thing if you're in a relationship. That's a good thing. Compromise, uh, compromise in marriage is not only important, it's necessary, it's critical. Um, how many of you married couples or dating or engaged couples have ever been shopping together? How many of you have been shopping together? Yeah. All right, so my wife and I, Jen, we shop, we shop very differently. Jen, when we go into a store to go you know, like clothing shopping, um, she is good at clearance, so I'll give her that. But typically, she's kind of like, she's looking over here and she's looking over there. She's kind of taking her time. She's wandering. Kind of feel like you're, you're on a field trip with children. 
right? There's a lot of snack breaks, a lot of bathroom breaks. You're wandering aimlessly. There's no attention span. You're going 0.5 miles an hour, and by the end, you're broke. You know what I mean? Like, it's one of those kind of things. Uh, I shop a little bit differently. So <laughs> when I go to the mall, I'm like a SEAL team on, on, a, uh, on a mission. We're, we've got, we've got a, a hostage extract, right? We're like a special ops team. We gotta make the extraction, right? So I'm like, all right, so let's look at the map. Okay, the, the, the fastest way to H&M is this way. All right, and so we're gonna go and we're gonna make the extra. We're gonna make the pull, right? And so we go in and the, the cashier is like, whoa, did you see something? Did we have a customer or was that a wind? Like, I'm not sure what just happened. I'm in and out, we're going. And so we have to compromise in our shopping. I have to slow down a little bit and Jen has to speed up a little bit. Uh, there's compromise. Uh, and so uh, this is an important thing. Uh, by the way, Amazon doesn't hurt uh, in compromise. So. In politics, relationships, business agreements, hey, compromise is good, it's an important thing. But in, listen, in our moral and in our spiritual lives, when we use the word compromise, this is a very, very negative thing. Pastor Tony Evans says this, compromise is the cancer of the church, and we must rid Christ's body of it. While Christians can compromise on preferences, they cannot compromise on principles. We can't be one way on Sunday and another on Monday. This is a major problem among Christians in America today. We don't take a stand. We don't keep our standards. We merely shift to satisfy society. Wow. There was a church in Asia Minor that was beginning to take those exact slippery steps. And today we're gonna study the church that met in the city of Pergamum. Uh, Now, if you're just joining us, and this is your first Sunday in this series, we are studying the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3. And essentially, John the Apostle is on the island of Patmos, and he's been exiled for his faith in Christ, and he hears this incredible sound that sounds like a waterfall, and when he turns around, he sees none other than Jesus Christ in his full, resplendent, unveiled glory, and it's a glory that that no one has ever seen on the earth except for Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. And John falls down, and he's in amazement, and he's in fear, and Jesus says, I've got something to write Uh, to you. I've got something to say to the seven churches. And these were seven literal churches that existed in that day. But the application for them also extends to us. This applies to us uh, as a church, as uh, shoreliners today. So with each of these messages, Jesus gives us kind of a template that we've been following. So if you're taking notes, you want to jot these down. This is the kind of template we're going to follow today. Um, Jesus speaks to each city, which is a literal place. So we'll learn about the city in a minute. Uh, He gives them a characteristic of chapter one uh, that John turned around to see. So he's gonna refer back to chapter one and reach back and say, this is the characteristic I wanna communicate to you. And so you can identify with me. Uh, Thirdly, he gives them a commendation, a thumbs up. I wanna commend you, you're doing a great job. And we need that from time to time. We need a pat on the back and a thumbs up. Uh, Then he's gonna give them a criticism. Doesn't do that with every church, but most of the churches he says, hey, I've got something that's, that's wrong in your life that needs fixing. Don't you guys agree? We need people in our lives that'll speak some criticism to help us grow, don't you agree? We need that. Someone's like, I'm not agreeing with that. All right, well, we need that in our life. I need that, you need that. And so Jesus gives criticism, but he doesn't leave them there. He also corrects. He brings a word of correction. In the midst of criticizing, he says, let me correct this behavior. And in so doing, at the end, he gives them a crown. In other words, if you'll do this, if you'll overcome, If you won't just sit there and say, yeah, that was a nice message, I'm gonna go and not do anything about it. If you actually overcome, 
there's something waiting for you and it's glorious and it's a reward. And listen, it's something that we will be able to cast back at his feet in eternity and glory. And I want something to give him. I don't wanna have wood, hay, and stubble burn up and say, I have nothing left to give. There's maybe a small coin. Here you go, Lord. I wanna give him a crown of righteousness, of faithfulness. So that's how we're gonna use this as a template. Look at verse 12, and let's walk through this. First to the city, he says, to the angel of the church in Pergamos, right, Pergamos, uh, also known as Pergamum. If you're in Britain, you call your mom mum. Pergamum or Pergamos. Um, this was, if you're taking note, a religious epicenter. You kind of had Smyrna, we learned last week, the commercial center. Uh, we have Ephesus, the political center, but Pergamum or Pergamos was the religious center. Uh, it had quite a, an impressive city, I think we have a picture, built on the top of a mountain, this high citadel, was lifted up out of the valley. This is where they began building. And it was very strong in defense. In fact, the name Pergamum, if you're taking note, means citadel, or it means lifted up, or it means high and lofty. Um, it had beautiful views of the countryside around it when it first began. And what they did is they built this citadel and then they began to expand out from the top of the hill. Uh, these high places that you go to, I know this is hard for us to imagine in Florida. We have interstates and landfills. We don't have mountains unless you're Mount Dora and those are kind of hills. And so it's hard for us to picture this, but when you're at the top of a mountain, anyone ever heard of what a mountain is? Does everyone know that? I know, it's Florida, I know. Uh, these, if you've ever been at the top, they give you kind of this, um, almost this moving uh, moment where you're just like, wow, God, you're amazing. It kind of gives you this spiritual moment, a sense of wonder and meditation and see the religious cults played, un played into that. And they said, oh, at the top of Pergamum, we're gonna start creating temples to all these different false gods. Here's another way to translate the word Pergamum. It can also be translated marriage, marriage. The church there was married to Christ, but they were also allowing spiritually adulterous thoughts to creep in. Uh, if I were to take you on a tour of Pergamum and say, hey, come on with Pastor Pilgrim, we're gonna go on a little tour of the city, this is what it would sound like. I'd say, all right, come on in, guys. Uh, let's walk into the city, and here's the opposing temple to Athena uh, right inside the city gate. Beautiful sunset view, the temple of Athena. And then we would turn left and you would see the, the temple of Caesar Augustus. And then I think the next slide is Hadrian's temple right nearby. These are all clustered together. You look a little bit further and you go, oh, there is the massive imposing altar to Zeus. Uh, I think we have the next one is the Zeus uh, altar. Um, that was what was preserved uh, back in the 1800s. This incredible, uh, powerful altar to Zeus uh, with an idol on it near the king's palace. Now, if that wasn't enough, we look at the side of the mountain and we see uh, the temple of Dionysius. That was the goat god of wine. If you picture Dionysius, he's the guy you picture in your mind's eye that has the horns and the upper part of his body is a man, his lower uh, half is a goat. He has cloven feet and a tail. Um, and so think of the oppression spiritually with all these temples uh, all gathered in the same area. It's no wonder that Jesus goes on and says to them, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. I, I know, you're surrounded by all of these uh, terrible places of false worship. But that wasn't it. There was also a temple of the god Asclepius. And I think we have a picture of that. Um, this was a very interesting place. This was known as the greatest hospital of the ancient world. And they basically had this cave that was dug out and you would walk in and there would be tunnels that you'd walk through and little 
little um, caverns um, that were cut down where people would call out to you as you, this is really creepy to me, but you'd walk through this cave, you're feeling sick, and you'd walk through to worship Asclepius, and as you're walking through, you'd hear people call out, you're feeling better, you're doing better, you're gonna be well, you're gonna be made whole, and so you're kinda walking through that, and if that didn't heal you by creeping you out, you'd get to the end where they would say, have a rest, sleep for the night, and as you fall asleep, suddenly all of these non-poisonous, non-venomous snakes would, would be released to crawl all over your body, okay? So here's by nature of doing this, the people who were sick, like me, would say, I'm better, it's incredible, I'm, I'm healed, I don't know what happened, thank you so much, good, good God, you know, God bless. Uh, if you didn't make it and you died, they had a back door, and so they'd kind of sneak the dead people out the back, so everyone got healed at this temple, very interesting uh, to me. Kingdom of Pergamum became a Roman province in 130 BC, and uh, Pliny termed it the most illustrious city of Asia. In fact, the word parchment derives its name from Pergamum. Why? Because there was the second largest library in the ancient world, second only to Alexandria, 200,000 books. Uh, It's incredible. Lots of literature, lots of parchment, lots of writing, but only one divine paragraph was needed to be listened to. And so notice what Jesus says. This is the characteristic of Christ. He says, these things says he, verse 12, who has the sharp two-edged sword. Uh, interestingly, Jesus refers to the church that's beginning to compromise. He refers them back to his mouth, uh, the sharp two-edged sword. Now, we'll revisit this idea a little bit later, but for a moment, when you think of sword in the Bible, it's mentioned 404 times. Uh, In the New Testament, it is almost exclusively, not entirely, but overwhelmingly used, the word sword is used of the scriptures. It's used of the Bible, Uh, The context is the word of God, okay? So that little deposit being made, we'll come back to that. Read what Jesus commends the church of Pergamos for. Notice verse 13. He says this, I know your works, and I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells, okay? If you're taking note, first Jesus says, I know your works and I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, okay? What does that mean, Satan's throne? Well, if you pulled the average person today and said, hey, where do you think Satan lives? What would most people say? Where do, they, where do you think Satan lives? What would you throw out there? In hell, I'd say, oh, he lives in hell, right? With all of you know, his friends or whatnot. Or someone might say, Washington, D.C. Okay, that's not funny, that's not funny. Pastor, don't get political. All right, so. I like what J. Vernon McGee says about this. This is pretty insightful. He says, religion was big business in Pergamum and Satan's headquarters were there. This ought to settle the question for those who think that Satan is in hell at the present time. He has never yet been in hell because hell hasn't opened up for business yet. Satan will not be in hell until much later as we shall see in chapter 20. And McGee goes on and says, at the present, Satan is loose and is the prince of this world, controlling kingdoms and going up and down the earth as a roaring lion, hunting for whom he may devour. But he does have headquarters, and Christ said they were in Pergamum at that time. Since those days, I think that he has moved his headquarters around to different places. Interesting. So what exactly was Satan's throne then? There have been a lot of different interpretations, but I think, as scholars kind of argue over this, I think it was literally the throne that we just saw of Zeus. Can we put that picture back up? Interestingly, this throne was discovered by the engine 
uh, the engine, the uh, German engineer, uh, Karl Humann, uh, back in the 1800s. And he basically, people were, were uh, just kind of um, defiling the city of Pergamum. And so he said, we need to preserve this site. And so he began excavating uh, the throne of Zeus brick by brick, stone by stone, and brought it to Berlin. In 1930, the Museum of Pergamon officially opened, and it opened with the throne as its centerpiece. Now, in 1930, there was a man named Albert Speer. He was the chief architect for the Nazi party, and he thought this is such a beautiful design, such a wonderful design that, look at this next slide, it was the inspiration uh, for uh, the parade grounds for the party rallies in Nuremberg. This uh, was actually his inspiration, the Pergamon false altar to Zeus. Can you imagine uh, living in uh, Nuremberg or in Berlin and seeing that and realizing at one point that was shaped around the actual throne of Zeus, right, the false god? Uh, can you imagine being in the midst of that kind of a sin city? Imagine, maybe not a literal throne, but all of us this morning can say, well, yeah, I live in the midst of a very crooked city, a crooked and depraved generation, a, a broken, sinful people. And so I love that Jesus says, I know where you live. I know that it proves difficult. I know it's hard. Uh, I dwelt in the dregs of Nazareth, and so I understand the difficulty of living in the world but not of it. So Jesus says, I know your works and where you live. Uh, notice the next one, the next commendation. He says, and you hold fast to my name. In other words, you're not selling out. Uh, you're remaining true to God, even though you're in the midst of incredible evil. The word hold fast, uh, the Greek means to grasp forcibly, or in the figurative sense, to remain firm. But Jesus says, I hold the seven stars. I am grasping them firmly. I'm not gonna let them go. I'm gonna hold on to them. And he says, you hold fast to my name, saying you understand the deity of Christ. In a pluralistic society, you're standing firm and you're not bowing the knee to false gods for the most part. And then he says this, thirdly, you're willing to die for the faith. Notice he mentions Antipas, his faithful martyr. Now, if you're taking note, the name Antipas uh, doesn't mean much to you just hearing that, but here's what the name means. It actually can be translated against all. And that's kind of a good picture of what this guy was about. We don't know much about him, but we do know he was the first martyr of Asia. And um, some people in church history believe he was slowly roasted to death in a bronze kettle during the reign of Domitian. Uh, now, his name represents the convictions that he lived by. He's against all, and not in, a, not in a jerk for Jesus kind of way, but he's like, I'm not gonna bow my knee to uh, the, the compromise around me. Uh, even if I have to be against all in my community, in my culture, I'm not gonna bend my knee to spiritual compromise. And so he's the example. And we have this great positive report from the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a wicked city, but a faithful group who's like, we're not gonna give up, we're not gonna give in. We're gonna die for what we know is right. So I wish we could just stop there and say, amen, isn't that great? The Church of Pergamos, that's great. We'll see you next week, everyone gets a lollipop. That'd be awesome if we could close the service today with that. But see, there's still a problem. Look at the criticism in verse 14. Jesus says, but I have a few things against you. That's a horrible thing to hear. Right? No one ever wants to hear, hey, the boss needs to sit you down. Hey, I have a few things against you. Right? No one wants to hear that. When we do surveys here at Shoreline, like, hey, how was your, how was your first Sunday? How was it? I have a few things against you. Right? We don't want to hear that. We don't really like to hear that. But to hear from Jesus, right? Jesus, I love you. He goes, yeah, thank you for that. I appreciate uh, your love, but I have some things against you. 
right? Ooh, this is not gonna be good. This is gonna be painful, but it's gonna be something that is for our good. He says, I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak uh, to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. And then he taught them to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Oh no, not the high and lofty city of Pergamum. I thought they had it all together at first glance, maybe. They're, they have all this evil around them, but see, they were, they were starting to allow things to creep in. They were willing to die for their beliefs, but they allowed one little bit of error, one little doctrinal mistake to enter in, and that behavior was bringing them down. Jesus mentions two doctrines. If you're taking note, I want you to write these down. The first is the doctrine of Balaam. Balaam, everybody remember Balaam and the donkey? Remember that guy? If you don't know the backstory, in the Old Testament, there was a prophet that Balak, the king of Moab, wanted to pronounce judgment on Israel. So he hired him. He was the prophet for prophet, right? He was the, he was the man of God for hire. And so the idea was, hey, I want, I want to hire you, Balaam, and I want you to come and just rebuke Israel and call down curses. And Balaam's like, okay, great, awesome. I mean, I'm going to go for it. And so as he begins to open his mouth, instead of curses, he's like, I can only say what I can say as a prophet, what I see. So here we go. Ready? Say curses. Blessing, and, um, and Balak's like, wait, hold on, that wasn't the arrangement. We need, to, we need to revisit this, right? We need to do a little review, and uh, you're failing. Let's try this again. I want, you to, I want you to curse them, and so Balaam says, okay, here we go. I'm only gonna say what I hear. Blessing, and so this happened three times, and finally Balaam says, look, there's, there's really no way I can, I can pronounce curses on them uh, because there is no curse to pronounce, but... I mean, I'm not suggesting this, but, you know, if you were to bring some of your really beautiful Moabite women, I know these Israelite men are tempted with sexual morality because of those beautiful Moabite women. If you were just to bring those Moabite women into the crowd, that may tempt them, and then they'll be sinning, and then they'll naturally receive a curse. They'll naturally uh, receive something that will correct them. So I'm not, I'm not just, I'm just gonna suggest that. And so essentially, that is what happened. We learned later that, he was the one that um, gave them that advice. Now, it doesn't say this in numbers, but we can read between um, the lines that he basically gives them this suggestion. Um, Balaam's advice led the Israelites to compromise and then to sin, and thus his counsel was successful. And so, listen to me very carefully. Balaam's counsel was the prototype for all false teachers. Let me give you something that will pull you away from the truth just a little bit, and will lead you to sin. Here's what Peter said about this same template. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 15 through 19, he says, forsaking the right way, they, these false teachers, have gone astray. And that is a moment where you're forsaking the right. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Peter goes on, and he says, these false teachers are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. This is the 
the uh, MO of false teachers. So what is the doctrine of Balaam? If put on the next screen. The doctrine of Balaam is to compromise what we know is morally upright for what is expedient. And we'll leave that up there for you to write that down or take a picture. To compromise what we know uh, that is morally upright for what is expedient. It's to put stumbling blocks in front of people. <clears throat> Things that will trip up our walk with God. And for the church of Pergamum, it began, listen, it began by eating food sacrificed to idols. We're just saying, it's not a big sin, it's just, it's a little bit of compromise. We're gonna start with that. And then it eventually led to idol worship. And then it led to temple idol worship. And in those temples, you would have uh, as much as in, in Corinth, a thousand temple prostitutes that would help you to worship sinfully. And it led to just the slippery slope of spiritual idolatry. That's the doctrine of Balaam. What about the Nicolaitans? We learned about them in the church of Ephesus. They were followers of Nicholas who apparently taught, hey, you're free in Christ to do whatever you want. Well, you're free, you're, you're safe, so you're good uh, with no consequences. The idea is it's licensed to sin. But at the same time, it was an idea of like, okay, we're gonna separate the leadership and the laity and we're gonna make the leaders of the church the most important people and the laity the least important people. So there's this idea of authority and spiritual superiority uh, of setting the leadership apart. And so it's licensed to sin with a hierarchy of superiority. Hey, I'm free to sin and you can't tell me what to do. That's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. So the combined hybrid teaching of both of these guys was, listen, you can compromise your behavior and you can kind of mix into what the world is doing, yet at the same time, listen, at the same time you can keep your reputation of being a lofty, high, spiritual, religious person of authority. Wow, what a sad indictment on the church. There may be someone here this morning that has compromised what you know you shouldn't do because you thought, well, I'm free to do it. Or, you know, there's no consequences. You know, this morning, I just have to admit, it looked fun, it looked intriguing, it looked exciting, yet at the same time, you were trying to keep your guise of spiritual authority or your position or your prowess toward others. As the church of Smyrna, we learned last week, they were unbending towards compromise. We're not giving in at all. We're drawing a line. We will not go there, even if we're persecuted. The church of Pergamum said, mm, I'd like to keep my reputation, but I'd still like to indulge. One official in India in the 1940s purportedly said this. I, I don't know if it's true or not, but I thought, if it is, that's powerful. Apparently, this Indian official said, don't persecute the Christians or they'll become strong and spread. Instead, wherever you find Christians grouped together, build cinemas, drinking halls, nightclubs, and gambling dens, and they will destroy themselves. Wow. All too often, this is the case. Don't you find yourself worshiping on Sunday and then compromising on Monday? Uh, maybe putting on the Joy FM Christian fish face, and then we go home and we worship pleasure or money or success or self. See, spiritual compromise isn't choosing other gods to worship instead of Jesus, it's trying to include other gods along with our worship of Jesus. And many people are doing this. They're bowing down to many idols. And the problem with Christianity, uh, or the problem when Christians do this, rather, is when we purport to bow to Jesus and then we also choose to bow to other gods. It's compromise. It's the way of Balaam. I love what D.L. Moody said. This is so helpful. He says, Christians should live in the world but not be filled with it. A ship lives in the water, but if the water gets into the ship, she goes to the bottom. So Christians may live in the world, but if the world gets into them, they sink. Anybody sink ever? Yeah, too much world. Too much world in my life. I'm sinking. 
The compromise says, I know I shouldn't, but I want to. Why not? Uh, Here's the definition if you want to take notes. Spiritual compromise. Accepting a lower moral standard to live by that lessens or deadens your spiritual effectiveness. Is that you here this morning? You've accepted a lower moral standard to live by that'll lessen or deaden your spiritual effectiveness? See, what happens in spiritual compromise, what happened with the Church of Pergamum is they said, we're not all gonna hold to the doctrine of Balaam, the doctrine of, of the Nicolaitans, but some of us will. We'll allow some compromise. We're not gonna go full on. But see, what began uh, as kind of an idea in Ephesus became a doctrine in Pergamum. We're just gonna dive in a little bit. What happens is you take one step and then another step and then another step. And like the maybe inexperienced floating person at the beach off Anna Maria Island, you've seen some of those guys recently, the water's kind of cold and they're coming down from Canada and they're in the water right now and you're like, you're crazy. And I can't wait till the summer and then I'll be crazy. But these people are crazy, they're in the water right now. They leave their stuff on shore and what happens? Their stuff doesn't move, they move, they drift. They find themselves pulled by the current. It's very subtle, it's very simple. C.S. Lewis said it this way, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. You and I know this, that sin begins in the mind, it develops in the heart, and then it comes to fruition in the body. And all sin can be traced back to a moment of spiritual compromise. Can we just spend a minute on this, church? Would you permit me for a minute? I think we, you don't wanna hear this. You don't wanna hear this. This is tough. The spiritual compromise. This is an area that many of us fall into. In fact, here are the five slippery steps to spiritual compromise. Five slippery steps. Okay, first of all, this is what happens. There's, first of all, a failure to purpose in our hearts ahead of time to do the right thing. There's a failure. We don't do what Joseph did. We're, He purposed in his heart, I'm not gonna defile myself with the king's delicacies. I'm not gonna do it. Or Daniel, rather, I said Joseph. Daniel. Uh, Like David said in Psalm 101, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna make a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. And so we fail to do that. And then we find ourselves caught. And that's number two, where we underestimate evil. We don't recognize temptation. What did Jesus do when he was tempted? He didn't say, you know what, Satan, you're so lame. I'm so annoyed with you. Go away. Actually, that bread does look good. No, he didn't do that. Right? Jesus didn't underestimate evil. He understood it. Uh, thirdly, we rationalize. We go, well, you know, it's not that bad. It's not as bad as the people around me. I mean, I'm only gonna eat one donut. It's not the end of the world, right? And then you find yourself, I'm gonna eat two dozen donuts, right? I'm just gonna go for it. We rationalize. Does anyone relate to the donut eating? Or is it just me? That's, that's my struggle, okay. Number four, a failure to consider the costly consequences. See, when we rationalize it, we don't realize that there are consequences. Your marriage may end. The person that you've committed adultery against, their spouse may come and take your life. Uh, if you're playing with fire and you're in youth ministry, kids ministry, that will directly impact every single one of the students or children you're ministering to. How about dads and moms to your own children? Your lack of, of living for Christ and saying, I'm gonna live for the Lord and I'm gonna sin, you know what that compromise does? It teaches your kids Jesus isn't real. It makes them say, I don't wanna have anything to do with your faith, it's lame, it's not legit. There are consequences, and we have to realize that they're costly, and when we don't do that, then that leads to number five, a sudden deliberate choice to give in to sin. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go for it. I've already gone this far, I might as well just go the whole way. A little convicting, right? What would happen if we compromise just 1%, just 1%? Here's what would happen. 
I think we have a slide for it. Just 1% of compromise. Those of you who get mad at your phones, if you have Verizon, you'd have no cell service for 14 minutes every single day, just 1%. You know, come on, I don't have cell service most of the day, all right. A 1.7 million pieces of first class mail would be lost each day. Isn't that incredible? It would be lost if 1% of compromise happened. You're like, it gets lost anyway, all right. 35,000 newborn babies would be dropped every year by doctors or nurses. That seems like a lot. 200,000 people would be getting the wrong prescriptions every year if we were just off by 1%. Uh, unsafe drinking water would happen three days a year. So the county would say, oh, today happened to be that day. There's arsenic. Sorry, sorry about that. Uh, three misspelled words on the average page. Doesn't seem like a lot, but it adds up. And two million people globally would die from food poisoning every year, just 1%. In the scriptures, the best example of compromise is Lot. And I don't have time this morning, but go and read the story of Lot. He pitched his tent towards Sodom, and then he found himself in Sodom. And not just in Sodom, but at the city gates, the place of influence. Jesus corrects the entire congregation in his rebuke. Notice that he says uh, in verse 15, you have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. You have some, not all, but you have a portion of people or holding to it. One person said this, notice that the church is not accused of holding to such doctrine and practice, here the term doctrine includes both as a whole, but is condemned for tolerating it to be held by some. While quote, some are guilty of moral and spiritual defilement, the rest are guilty of tolerating such sin. Just as the church, he goes on and says, just as the church at Corinth failed to deal with the immorality in its congregation, so the church at Pergamum was tolerating sin within its members. And I love this quote, bad teaching always leads to bad living. Now I don't wanna end there either. Let's look at the correction that Jesus gives to you this morning if you've compromised. Listen, I want you to know it's not to destroy you. It's not to send you out condemned. It is to correct. Notice that he says in verse 16, just simply repent. Repent, turn from your sin. Stop living that way and agree with God about this. He says, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. What does that mean? Well, if you look back at verse 12, Jesus wanted to identify himself with the church as the one with the sharp, double-edged sword. Uh, we learn from uh, the scriptures in the New Testament that the word of God is constantly described as a sword. Ephesians 6:17 says, take up the sword of the spirit which is the word of God, spiritual sword. The writer of Hebrews chapter four says this about the word, the word of God, it's living and active, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. And it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. See, God's word is likened to a sword, I was gonna ask some guys, but that seems like a weird request. Does anyone have a sword? I wanted to have a sword this morning. I pulled out a sword and show you this. It's used in battle, a large spiritual um, sword. Uh, but here in this text, the one that Jesus is speaking in Revelation 2, it actually refers to a smaller dagger, a small blade. And you wouldn't use this to get into a sword fight with someone to try to behead them, uh, but you would do this to pierce the torso, to attack the vital organs of the heart. God's word can be a gentle knife to get in and work on our hearts like a scalpel in a surgeon's hand to show our hearts 
need to be given to him. But here in Revelation 2, verse 16, the word for sword here, uh, specifically in verse 16, verses verse 12, it's, it's the word large sword used in judgment. And so Jesus is saying, if you don't repent, then I'll come with judgment and my word and you'll reap what you've sown. God is offering us a chance this morning to repent of compromise. And I think that's an important point for us, to come to the Lord this morning and say, Lord, I repent. Would your word come and divide joints and marrow, soul and spirit? Lord, would you speak to this situation? What would your word say about this? I've been calling it a fling, but your word calls it adultery. I've been considering it to be fun, but your word calls it drunkenness. I've just been playing around with this, this thought, but Lord, you, you call this idolatry. You see, there is a crown, there is a reward for those who overcome. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, he who has an ear, meaning if you're listening, then let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Wow, Jesus references manna. You guys remember that spiritual sustenance that God alone provided miraculously. Jesus says, there's some of that for you. And not only that, but he promises a white stone. Uh, any, uh, any Marvel fans here this morning? Anybody like Marvel? Marvel Comics? Yeah? Oh, you guys are DC? All right, there's a few Marvel fans. This white stone is actually the ancient tessera. Tessera, not tesseract. I thought that was interesting. The tessera stone. There were four uses for the tessera stone. Okay, and this is very amazing as far as application. This is what Jesus says. You get this. If you'll overcome and stop compromising your sin, I'll give this to you. Here's what he says. You could use a white stone for either a ticket to a special banquet, which to me represents access, access to the banquet feast. Or it could be a way that you could vote in a jury. You'd hold the black stone or the white stone. So that shows me it can be used as an acquittal for the penalty of sin. Thirdly, it's a symbol of victory for an athlete. Hey, you won, we hold up the white stone. To me, that's victory over sin and death. Or it could be used to show the freedom of a slave. Hey, we've paid for his price. We're gonna give him the white stone and set him free. Uh, that shows us that we've been redeemed from the curse of the law. I love this white stone and how it means all of this. And many of you ladies here this morning have on your left hand a very expensive and beautiful stone. And it was given to you uh, by someone who loves you deeply, probably sacrificially, uh, at great cost. Husbands are like, yeah, it was a lot of money, all right. But that stone represents your relationship with someone else. And amazingly, Jesus offers us a white stone. And on that white stone, he says, there's a name, notice, a name that's written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Isn't that awesome? And throughout scripture, a person's name is significant. Uh, as they follow God, they have their name sort of changed. Abram becomes Abraham. Jacob, the heel catcher, the deceiver, becomes Israel, governed by God. Saul, the one who is desired for, becomes Paul, little. It means so much, uh, these names. Simon, sifting sand, becomes Peter, the rock. Uh, what name will you and I receive on our stones? You know what, it's something that only will make sense to you and the Lord. I think that's gonna be significant. Jesus desires a marriage relationship without compromise, with intimacy and with fellowship with provision and with an identity found only in him. And listen, it's promised to those this morning who would be willing to overcome. As we close, I'm gonna invite the band up. 
we're gonna close in song. And I wonder this morning, go ahead and close your Bibles with me. Get settled for a minute. I wonder this morning if you're already heading down that slippery slope of spiritual compromise. There may be someone here this morning that needs to purpose in their heart not to sin. Or maybe there's someone who needs to start heeding the warnings around you, need to take serious the danger of the things that are tempting you. Others still this morning may need to place safeguards in their life to protect their heart and their mind. And perhaps there's someone here this morning that needs to repent and confess, yeah, I've compromised, I've sinned. And I can retool it and repurpose it and change the name all I want, but it's sin against a holy God and I've violated him and I've, I've lived a lawless life and I need to repent, I need to turn from that, I need to confess that this morning, spiritual compromise. Lawrence M. Gould, the doctor, president emeritus of Carleton College said this, said, I do not believe the greatest threat to our future is from bombs or guided missiles. I don't think our civilization will end that way. He says, I think it will die when we no longer care. Arnold Toynbee has pointed out that 19 of 21 civilizations have died from within and not by conquest from without. There were no bands playing and flags waving when these civilizations decayed. It happened slowly in the quiet and in the dark when no one was aware. Does that describe you this morning, brother, sister? Is there spiritual apathy that has crept into your heart? And like the lieutenant at Pearl Harbor, you find yourself saying, nah, don't worry about it. Are you in need of the word of God to come and to speak to your divided heart? Would you bow your heads with me? My prayer this morning is that all of us would hear the word of God and that we would heed the word of God. That he who has ears to hear would hear what the spirit is saying to you. Thanks for listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast. Visit us Sundays at 10 a.m. at 5100 Lakewood Ranch Boulevard. For more content or to learn more about Jesus, visit our website, thisisshoreline.com.